invite you to Proverbs 31. In your Bibles, Proverbs 31. The evolutionary model of origin strips humanity of all dignity and worth. To the evolutionist, the human race is a cosmic accident. We have no design, we have no dominion, and we have no destiny. We came from nothing, we exist for nothing, and we are destined for obliteration. How immeasurably more glorious is the biblical cosmology. God reveals in His Word that we are creatures made in God's likeness, bearing His image. Man as male and female is the pinnacle of creation. We are endowed with unique worth from our Creator. We are designed and commissioned by God to exercise dominion over the earth and to subdue it for His glory. And this is a team project between men and women, isn't it? As we know the biblical account and as we think through Genesis 1 and 2, it's a team project. With his last stroke of creative genius, God formed a woman and brought her to the man to join him in filling and subduing the earth to the Creator's glory. Simply put, God created Adam and Eve to work. Now there's much more to it than that, but he did create them for that, to work. The curse of sin rendered that work a lot harder, and the influence of sin in our hearts tempts us to despise work on the one hand or to love it too much on the other. On the one side, to yield to laziness, and on the other side, to worship our work. Yet God has designed and commissioned us to work. We're made for this. It's not a result of the curse. It's influenced by the curse, but we are made to work. Adam was created to keep the Garden of Eden as he protected and lovingly provided for his wife. Eve was to exert her uniquely civilizing abilities as Adam's subordinate helper. She was to help subdue and exercise dominion over creation as a woman in the direct interest of her husband. Now these things that I've said sound very strange in this world. But in a biblically-minded church, one that reads the Word of God faithfully and seeks to honor the Word of God in assembly, these are not new ideas. This is just Genesis 1 and 2 worked out. The challenge, I think, comes more in integrating this biblical worldview with everyday life. Living under the influence of our God-denying culture, we may readily employ the language of the Bible while at the very same time adopting the practices of an evolutionary-minded world. Which filters in to this discussion in the form of feminism. It is here that the book of Proverbs, and particularly Proverbs 31, proves so valuable to us. In this poem, God illustrates for us the character and the practice of an ideal wife. God, in a sense, puts his arm around us, sits us down at his table, and says, let's talk about this. Let's look at what an ideal woman is from my angle, from how I have created her, and from the way that I want you to think about it. She is ideal. There is no one who will be able to match her virtue for virtue or skill for skill or effort for effort. But we get a good look here at ideal humanity, and that's helpful. 
It's epitomized in the person of Jesus Christ. But here we find in the labors of this beautiful and rare woman, one who would follow Christ in her efforts. And so, young men, I think this poem reveals God's vision of an ideal wife, and it would be very wise to pay attention. For widows and wives and young women, this is the character and orientation of a worthy woman in God's eyes. Pay attention. And for husbands, this is the kind of woman you should inspire with your own example and provision. The kind of woman you should be training your daughters to emulate. And that we as a church should train our daughters to emulate. This is God's word. This is God's counsel. Put together not only with the big picture of the biblical worldview, but here in the practical nitty-gritty of daily life, here's what she looks like. Verse 10 of Proverbs 31. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. We looked at these verses last week in great detail, but remember the excellent wife is a wife of valor. She is a heroine in Israel, pictured in very similar terms with the soldiers of Israel, the great warriors of God's people. With all their iconic stature, this same kind of language is used of her to build her up and to show her great worth as a heroine in Israel. She gains for her husband, verse 11. The word gain is literally plunder. Again, a military term. But what does that valor look like? What kind of plunder does she get for her husband? How is it that she does him good and not harm all of the days of her life? What does that look like? In verses 13 through 27, now remember this is an acrostic poem, and so it's not thematically arranged all that carefully, but remember, in verses 13 through verse 27, we have something of a segment here. A segment that deals with the work that she does, the practical application of what it means to do your husband good all the days of your life. In fact, one who fears the Lord, as the poem concludes. But let's just pick through these one by one, remembering that each one represents a letter in the Hebrew alphabet and so needs to be kind of taken on its own as a proverb and unpacked and considered as we meditate on it. We'll just pick through these, beginning at verse 13. And the Hebrew word daleth that starts the verse. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. The wool of sheep and the fibers of the sun-dried flax plant were used to make thread, which was used to make clothes and to make home furnishings. So having secured these materials, she now works willingly with her hands. The Hebrew word for willing here is insightful. It, it speaks of pleasure or delight. Her hands are fairly shaking with the anticipation of getting after the work that she has to do. Verse 14, she is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. The merchant ships, writes Waukee, signifies trading that is prudently planned, diligently executed, and enterprisingly ventured. In other words, she is not satisfied with bland mediocrity for her home. She exerts careful forethought and diligent effort in the skillful securing of the best she can provide for her family. The author does not celebrate here, I don't think, extravagance, but I think he's looking at diligence. 
There is no virtue in going to great lengths to purchase at a higher price what might be attained closer to home and less expensively, though perhaps lacking some label or other. That's not the point here. The more expensive it is, the better it is. The point here is her diligence. She is diligent and skillful and innovative as she secures food for her family. Some would see this in our culture as very demeaning of the woman, forcing her into a certain expectation. Well, for those that have read the Bible very often, we kind of get used to the fact that God does have expectations for us. In fact, he gives us some very specific guidelines. We don't take that as a challenge. We realize that that's his goodness, his mercy to us as our creator. But it's not demeaning at all. In fact, she really imitates God here. She is providing for others. Verse 15, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She rises early in the morning to provide this food. Although pictured as a woman with maidservants, she makes sure that they are supplied. Think of this. This isn't an aristocratic woman who sits around hoping for others to serve her all day. By day, they work and complete tasks for her. But before they start work, she willingly works to provide food for them. The Hebrew word is literally pray. It pictures her as a lioness going out into the night and securing food for the den and bringing it back in. She's watching over everyone that is under her care. Think of her character here. We have a woman who is selfless, who provides for others at the cost of her own comfort. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it, and with the fruit of her hands she plants a vineyard. So apparently she's working diligently with her hands, producing merchandise that she's able to sell, and with the proceeds, finds a field that she's able to purchase and plants a vineyard there so that she can supply her family with grapes. The average Israeli woman would have plenty to do in fulfilling her responsibilities right within the confines of her own house. But here is a woman who goes out beyond the house, beyond the limitations of that place, and reaches out into the community. She is able to generate money. She's able to manage money. She's able to start a business venture through interaction with others. And I think that she bought the field with her husband's knowledge. I don't think she probably just uh, brought that to him at night when he got home and said, by the way, I just bought a property. I'm sure she's talking to him, but she's putting it together and seeing it and searching it out and working to accomplish this great feat. She's not holed up behind the walls of her home, cowering in fear of the world. But she's out there accomplishing. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. The Hebrew term again is a military term. It girds up the loins, speaking of a soldier that would pick up the flowing robes and stuff them into his belt, ready for action, ready to fight. And so she girds up her loins. She prepares herself, ready for work. She's not merely a woman whose ideas run out of gas before anything gets finished. She doesn't push her work off onto others. She has the idea, but they do all the work. She is one who has a strong arm. That is one who is energetic and diligent to pour out her efforts to get the work done. Her diligence fuels renewed energies where sloth makes a person lazier and lazier. Verse 18 she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She gets excited about the fact that others are profiting from the things that she's doing. 
gets excited enough to stay up too late sometimes. Going after the work projects that are there. Verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. The distaff and spindle were technological tools used in that day for the making of thread out of flax and out of wool. Very similar to verse 13. The point is that we will often find her making thread so she may provide clothes and furnishings for her family. But her diligent efforts are not selflessly reserved for them, we notice in verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. This diligent, disciplined, hard-working woman is not laboring for her own fame or merely for the good of her family. She is a woman of compassion. That is, she is skillful at detecting the needs and the sufferings that others are going through. And she willingly reaches out to those kinds of people. She has compassion. God has generally equipped women with heightened sensitivities toward those who are in trial. And it is a beautiful thing to watch a woman of moral skill display such compassion. In fact, it does much for a home when she does so and reaches out to people in need and in connection with her husband, picks others up through her sensitivities to their trials. On the topic of needs, her efforts assure that her own family has none Verse 21, she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. In a world without electricity, the cold of winter could be particularly dangerous. But the excellent wife has no fear of this. She has diligently and willingly labored with her hands to make sure that her family is clothed warmly. Scarlet was an expensive dye and would be typically used on the most expensive wool, thus the warmest wool. And so she knows that her family is well prepared for the winter. Again, the emphasis falls not on extravagance, but on diligence. She knows that they have coats. She knows that the supplies are there. She is not concerned about the things that may come ahead because she has prepared ahead. She anticipates the family's needs. She has met those needs beforehand. Like the ant of which the Proverbs speak, she has done her work in the summer and has no fear of the winter. Verse 22, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. One of the most civilizing effects women can have on men is in their efforts to beautify and soften the home environment. Now, women shouldn't get discouraged here because men just basically don't get this very often. We try, it's hard, but we don't. Um, I am reminded of a conversation that's stuck in my mind from seminary days. I rode for some distance to work with a, a friend in seminary and we would talk about life, man things, and theology and, and ideas that we had about what we would do and where we would go in life and just all the kinds of things two friends talk about that are on the same page. And I remember one day my friend said to me, what on earth? We would talk about our wives occasionally because they're both newly married and this whole thing was kind of new and we'd trying to put it all together. And he'd say, what on earth, he said, is the purpose of a doily? I can't figure this out. You can put the lamp down on a table or you can put some cloth underneath it and it slides all over the place. What is the point of a doily? And we went into this long discussion. I wish it had been taped. It could have been quite humorous, I think, but we never figured it out. 
We still don't know what the point of a doily is. There's all kinds of things like that in our homes. I think of the uh, decorative pillows. I, I really don't understand the point of it. My time with them is basically spent on picking them up and putting them back on whatever they were pulled down from. But they're all over. They're on beds and couches and chairs and all over the house, and they do absolutely no good for anybody. I don't get it. The only thing they're good for is having a pillow fight with, and you can't have pillow fights with them. They're just worthless. Most men are never going to understand why anyone would clutter their life with floofy stuff. But understand it or not, there is something to such touches that warm a home and remind even men that a woman is here. And that's valuable. I'll never get the pillows and the doilies and all the stuff. But you know a woman's there. And that's of great, great worth. She warms the home. She wears clothing, which is fine linen and purple. That is, she dresses well. Now, that, this is not in violation of 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Let's just turn there real quickly and consider this passage just to keep it in line so that we don't draw the wrong conclusion. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 Considering the clothing of a woman, it says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Don't let it be the adorning that is external. External adornment is not wrong in and of itself, but that should not be the focus and the emphasis so back to Proverbs 31, this is not in violation of what Peter is saying and what is mentioned in other books of the New Testament. In our day, the best dressed women are generally those with the most time and the most money. And sometimes even those who misuse money. They're the best dressed women. So we're in a different cultural context here. In the biblical context, a woman's dress was connected more to her diligence. She was making the clothes. And so with great energy and with great effort, she was making sure that what she was wearing was appropriate. Not gaudy, not materialistic, but appropriate and respectable and faithful in her dress. Obviously, our days are very different. There probably isn't anyone here. Perhaps there's one or two that do so as a hobby, but not as a monetary reason. Virtually no one makes their clothes in this culture right now. So the point is not extravagance, but once again, diligence and dressing in a manner that is appropriate and honors her husband in a number of ways, both publicly and privately. Uh, verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Remember again, the acrostic poem jumps all over the place. It's not in logical sequence here. But we find here reference to the elders or local government authorities who met at the main gates of an ancient city. The idea here seems to be that her rare qualities as a wife reflect directly upon her husband. Now think back to the David narratives. This is not saying that Nabal was considered a godly man because he was married to Abigail. There's no perfect equation here. However, a woman's reputation does have a direct influence upon how people view her husband. A capable, winsome and respected wife will win for her husband a hearing among other men that he may not get otherwise. 
This verse also assumed that the husband is a capable, winsome, and respectable man who provides opportunity for his wife to launch out into her endeavors. He does not sit, in other words, at the city gate among the elders, frittering his day away in idle chatter while she does all of this work. He is a man capable of supporting his wife's efforts. And together they earn a favorable reputation in the community. How she lives influences him in the town. And it brings to application-wise, certainly here, the question, how do you influence the view that others have of your husband? That's a question I think that every wife should ask. Every husband should ask the same thing, obviously. But in the context of Proverbs 31, what do other people think about your husband having come to know you? Do you give him a break? Do you interest others in your husband simply by who you are? Or do you raise questions in their mind and put people on the defensive right away simply because they've come to know you? There's a lot at stake here. I think God cares about this very much. His glory is at stake, as is the gospel in Ephesians chapter 5. The wife is to reflect the relationship that the church has to Jesus Christ. In fact, in Christ, she is to image that, not only as a task, but it's who she really is in Christ. She is one with Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And so in her physical relationship with her husband in this world, she is to model the relationship of Christ's love for His church. God has a lot at stake here. His name is on the line in Christian marriages. Others look at her husband through the lens of what they see in her. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. We return to her diligent and skillful ways. The woman never tires of creative work. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Strength, she's not a weak woman. Dignity, she's not frivolous or flighty or small-minded or immature or unpolished. She laughs. What does that mean? She laughs at the time to come. Think of it in terms of the warrior. He laughs at the opposing army or the inferior opponent who pretends to intimidate him. He just laughs. In like manner, she laughs at the fears of the future. There's no future calamity coming her way. This isn't laughing at the potential of bitter providence saying that she knows what God will do and that she's secured against all problems. But what is it saying? She's ready for what's coming down the pipe. She's ready. She's prepared. You're not going to find her family in great trial because she has failed to prepare for them. And so she can laugh at the dangers of the future that others would fear. Verse 26, She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Wisdom is the moral skill that God has been describing in the entire book of Proverbs. She speaks that skill. She speaks with that wisdom. She speaks with kindness. The Hebrew word has said, often translated covenant love, including the idea of kindness. The words that come from her mouth are a reflection of what is in her soul and are evidenced by what's, what comes out through her hands. But how, 
out of sync it would be for this woman with all of these diligent efforts, with this orientation toward others, this selfless way of life, this innovative orientation, to then come down next to her and hear her using foul language or flighty words or gossip or weak ideas. No, it wouldn't fit at all, would it? The very essence of who she is is grounded to the wisdom of God and so it comes out of her mouth in kindness and in moral skill. Her words are rich and they're deep and they're appropriate. In verse 27, we have something of a summary of this section between verses 13 and 26 as the poem deals generally with her responsibilities with what she does in daily life. Verse 27, I think, is a summary. So let's boil it all down and look at this. Here's the statement. This verse summarizes her efforts. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household. That is, she is oriented toward the welfare of her family. She pays diligent attention to their daily needs. She exerts high levels of comfort-sacrificing energy to address every issue that pertains to their profit. Her life is oriented toward them. She lives that they might be better people, that she could provide what only she can provide for them. Again, it's not self-oriented. It doesn't stay only with the family. It moves out to others. But this is her focus, the welfare of her home. And secondly, verse 27, she does not eat the bread of idleness. That is, she's a hard worker. So she is oriented toward the good of her family, and she is a diligent worker. There's not a lazy bone in her body. She works diligently, tirelessly, and selflessly in the interest of her family. This is just who she is. There's so many lessons for us here and for young women who are overhearing this conversation to the young men. Young women, I think it would be important for us, those of you who are pursuing marriage, that someday may be a mom, a wife, we need to say this in the face of this passage of Scripture. God made you to work. He made you to work. He made you for a lot of other things, but He made you to glorify Him. And work is an aspect of how you glorify God. How you get in sync with your creative design. He made you to work. If you are lazy and lack initiative, if you seek work as something to get out of the way, you need to change. You need to reorient your life. God commends a woman who works hard, who takes pride in her work, whose labors are a blessing to her and a blessing to others. That's the kind of woman that you should strive to be. Are you oriented that way? Do you want to become that kind of wife and mother should God give you that opportunity someday? Are you developing the skills necessary to faithfully serve the needs of a family? You're not going to get that message in our culture. In our culture, it's all about how you look. It's all about how people see you. It's all about image. It's all about skin and how much you can reveal of it. That's what this culture's orientation is. Who's the prettiest? Who's the most popular? God wants you to look at life very differently. He has given you abilities and skills. You don't have all of them that this woman has. You don't even know what a distaff is. Right? But He's given you unique abilities and He wants you to pour your life out in labor for Him. 
He calls you to work. Are you developing that way? And moms, are we teaching our daughters to think that way? We've, they've got to think counterculturally. They are not going to pick this up in this world. In fact, it is going to be assaulted at every turn. You can't drive down the freeway without having this concept assaulted. What is the model woman? Well, you ask the world, you're going to get one picture. You ask God, you're going to get another. Now, we can try to take what the culture says and see if the Bible doesn't at least say it's wrong and go with what we want to do. Or we can start with God's word and his counsel and where he says, this is how I design male and female to work and to follow from his counsel and to do what he has called us to do is a far better approach and leads to joy. Moms, are you teaching your daughters to think biblically about what a woman is and how she should relate to her husband and to her family? Young men, this is written directly to you, those who are pursuing marriage or someday may become a husband or father. Value the unique worth of a godly woman. Learn to highly value hard-working women in general. Think just to develop a mindset that appreciates a woman who works hard and innovatively and skillfully, who is always busy in good things. Value that. If that's in your mother, praise God and thank the Lord for her. I didn't know what God was doing, but I look back now and see and how many turns he was making me into a pastor. As a young boy, I remember a very lengthy season of life laying on the living room floor and listening to the preaching of Charles Swindoll on the radio. Hearing those sermons week after week, just taking them in and growing in my faith in the Lord through them. Now, he said something once to young men looking for a wife that I've never forgotten. And I caution you, this was the 70s, okay? So I don't think he'd say this today. Times have changed perhaps a little bit, but just hear me out. He said, when you're looking for a girl, what you want to look at first is her hands. Look at her hands. If her hands are beat up, and it's clear that they get dirty. That's good hands. If her hands are perfectly manicured and look like they've never seen a day of work, that's bad hands. Now, again, I don't think he'd ever say that today, probably, and I think probably more women manicure their hands now than then by far. But there is a point here. Does a woman use her hands in such a way as to keep them from ever getting dirty? there could be a problem with that in God's mind. A woman, certainly, we can say this much, who feels she is above the indignity of manual labor should fall below the radar of a young man's interest. If she thinks she's too special to perform hard work, she is not special enough to consider for marriage. Lazy, aristocratic women simply do not have the spirit of Jesus. And no amount of charm... And no amount of beauty should be permitted to compensate. So maybe early in a dating relationship, young men, you should take the woman into the garden and weed and see what happens. If it's full-scale meltdown, 
you've learned something. If she's willing to get her hands dirty and get dirt up those nails and crack the skin a little bit, you got something. I wouldn't marry her on that basis by any means, but you've, you've got something. You've at least got to start. Will she get her hands dirty? Is she a hard worker? Parents, we've got a lot to learn here, don't we? And much rebuke, perhaps. Are you teaching a biblical perspective to your children? Ideal humanity tethered to our creative design and focused on Christ-likeness is the ideal. It's not that our children would be successful in the eyes of this world. It's not that they would make as much money as they can possibly make, gain as much fame as they can possibly gain. God's counsel is very different. And we need to have our children perceive that and see that in our own lives as we point them to the kind of person that God is and how far short we fall. But we have a great teaching effort to go on here. We have no interest as a church to undermine the responsibilities of parents. This is ultimately a parental responsibility. But the question has been asked recently, as someone put it to me on a radio recording or something, uh, what does your church do to teach young men to be young men and young women to become young women? What does it do to teach them? Now this is a parental responsibility, but it is also a church family responsibility. We can never take the place of parents, and we never want to push parents to the side. But there are things that we are doing. In fact, I think one of the best things that we are doing as a church to support parental teaching in these matters is our teen seminars. On October 6th, we have planned to take the young men and to talk to them about what it means to work. And our young women, we are going to take and talk to them about what it means to lead a home. What it means to care for a home and for a husband and children. Now, these aren't topics that we can ultimately deliver as a church anywhere nearly as efficiently as a mom and dad can in the home. But these are conversations that are taking place with our young people that I think are vital conversations. And I think we should avail ourselves of them where we can, where that opportunity is there. And those conversations continue throughout each year, three, four times a year, as we talk to our teens about these very kinds of matters and what it looks like and how to become this kind of person. I just rejoice as I think back on the report of our trip to Rockford and the teens this summer and the work that they did there. Uh, just to listen to that report of the diligent efforts that they put forward in painting and digging and moving rocks and brush and those kinds of things. What a tremendous opportunity to together as a church say, this is right, this is good, this is work, and God is pleased with it. What a tremendous privilege. May we as a church continue to find such opportunities to put our young people to work, to show them that work is good, and for them to display among one another what God has given them, what gifts He has given them, and what diligence He has put in their soul as they tackle projects and become the people God wants them to be. Husbands, there's a tremendous challenge for us here. We are to set the tone in our homes for the kind of character and diligence God calls His people to display as they subdue the earth. We need, as leaders, to give vision in our home to be hard workers, to develop the skills that God has given us, to be selfless, 
not to be lazy, and to give leadership to our wives and to our children to know what it means to be diligent workers and to subdue this earth for the glory of God. Wives, what a great word there is here. Certainly a word of rebuke, a word of difficulty for everyone. It's the ideal woman, and she's hard to match. You can't, in fact. You know, we need to consider very carefully, there's nothing demeaning here. The evolutionary model, the feminist model, will provide no such vision of true womanhood. The only vision for you will be for you to act like men and for men to act like children. That's where our culture is at. The women of Eden Baptist Church know this. There is nothing more liberating, there is nothing more beautiful, there is nothing more God-glorifying than for you to be the woman God created you to be and to fulfill the function He commissioned you to complete in relationship with the husband that He has given you. Go after the counsel of God. Don't run away from it. There's beauty in it. Strive to be a woman of virtue who lives her life in energetic, skillful, and imaginative service to others. Indeed, God is reflected here in this woman. For God is ever working with unflagging energy to provide and to serve. And as He lets a woman loose in such a function, He is giving to her the opportunity to do what He does, to go out into this world, to provide for her home, to give her energies and her skill in accomplishing the work that God's given her to do. Ultimately, she is reflecting the person of Jesus Christ who got down on His knees and washed His disciples' feet and said, this is how I have served you. Serve one another in the same way. She reflects the character of her God. She reflects the character of her Savior, Jesus Christ, when she gives her life to serve, to pour out her energetic, skillful, and imaginative service for others. And women, when you do this, you will never regret it nor will anyone else.